The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so the kids got a chance a second ago to yell out their favorite season. I'm going to invite you adults on the count of three to yell out your favorite season. Or maybe it's winter. Maybe you like the snow. Maybe you like the cold. You like to be bundled up. You like the chicken noodle soup and you like the hot chocolate. Maybe you like spring. Maybe you like sneezing. Maybe you like being allergic to stuff. Maybe you like the summer. Maybe you like being miserable and sweaty and perpetually wet. Um, Or maybe you like the fall when everything is beautiful and wonderful and football is on TV. On the count of three, I want everybody to yell out their favorite season. One, two, three. Does, does somebody yell Spider-Man? <laughs> Did I, was that, okay. Not that somebody yelled Spider-Man. That's fair too. The thing about seasons is whether we like it or not, they come and they go. Like, regardless of how you feel about winter, in just a couple of weeks, it's going to be spring, Right? For some of us, there's, thank, thank the Lord, there's relief in that. For some of us, you know, we sort of, we sort of dread sneezing season. And one of the things that we have, to, we have to do to sort of stay sane through the changing of the seasons is learn to receive each season in its particulars. We just have to, we have to learn to find something about this time of year that we like. We have to convince ourselves that we like the cold or convince ourselves that we like the summer, or that there's particular joys that come with each. Uh, for years, I have always hated spring. Always hated spring, largely because when I was a kid, it was like it's getting warm outside and summer is, is beckoning us. It's like sunny outside and it's, it's you know, the, the swimming pools are like calling our names, but we're still stuck in school. For me, spring was like a pre-summer tease. Always hated spring. But as I got older and I started to, to grow in my love for the scriptures and what the scriptures teach about the resurrection of Jesus and how the spring season is when we celebrate Easter because it's like the whole world is being resurrected, I learned to love spring because of its kind of unique angle on the truth of who God is as the one who makes all things new, right? So the seasons, the, the, the way to kind of stay sane in the seasons is to learn to appreciate the goodness and the riches that come and sort of be present there within the riches of that particular season. Now, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a challenging book for a lot of reasons, not least because it's kind of a central refrain from the beginning chapters is that everything is, say it, hevel. Yeah, everything is hevel. All is hevel. Hevel is a Hebrew word that could be translated to mean something like meaninglessness or vanity, but we said the best way to read this word is vapor. The author of Ecclesiastes says everything is vapor. He asks in chapter 1, verse 3, what gain is there from all of our toil? And all of our doing and all of our investing and saving and all of our work, what, what gain is there at the end of the day? And the answer is nothing. Because like beasts, we, we all go to the grave. And there, there's no way to know for, I, I mean, we are all terminally ill. We're, we're all headed that direction. And he says everything is vapor. It's, it's fleeting. It's insubstantial. It's subject to change and decay. Now, uh, this evening, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And what he's going to say here in this chapter is that life is characterized by a changing of seasons. There are these seasons that come without a permission, whether we like it or not. There are seasons that come and seasons that go. And then he, he encourages us to perceive two things and to see two things. And then we'll, we'll see a couple of takeaways specifically for us. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1. For everything, there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. 
A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The preacher here has all of life in view. And he's covering every matter in between birth and death. And he's saying, these are the things that happen in every lifetime. Every lifetime is characterized by these back and forth, these ebbs and flows. Now, there's different ways that we could read what the, the preacher's intending to say with this little poetic reflection. One way to read it is as if he's saying that there's a season for X and a season for Y, and that there's, a, there, there's an appropriateness to those things, that the, that the readers need to see that there's an appropriate time to, do, to weep, and there's appropriate time to laugh, and wisdom is learning when it's appropriate to do what. And I think that's true, and I think the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, would say that that's true. But I don't actually think that's what the preacher is saying here. What the preacher is acknowledging in this poem, and really a kind of wide-eyed, almost matter-of-fact way, is that in every human life, all manner of things, good and bad, happen. In every human life, all manner of things, good and bad, happen. Things happen. That's just what they do. In our lives, we will experience every up and down. There'll be a time in our life, a season in our life, where there's killing and healing, where there's breaking down and building up. You and I, whether we like it or not, we will experience times of weeping, times of laughter, Times of mourning, times of dancing. Our lives, all human lives, are marked by times and seasons of all of these. Time to cast away, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. Social distancing, a.k.a. Part of our experience of these things is that, uh, part of our experience of these opening verses here in chapter 3 is that they're there. That's just facts of life. But part of what makes it challenging is that oftentimes, these things feel misplaced. These things happen and they don't feel like it's the time for these things to be happening. The preacher says as much in the same chapter in verse 16. Look down at verse 16. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Have you ever had that experience before? where you have an anticipation of something being one way, but it turns out being the other way. He says, in the place where I expected to find righteousness and justice, I found wickedness. In other words, all manner of things happened that felt wrong, that felt misplaced. It felt like it was the inappropriate time for these things to be happening. War, mourning, weeping, these things happen against our will, without our permission, and beyond our control. Verse 9, it seems like he's kind of acknowledging the, the futility of, uh, of uh, raging against that. There's nothing we can do to sort of get a hold of these changing seasons, to get out in front and sort of beat these times. In verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Do, do we have any grip or leverage or control over the changing seasons that he describes here? And the answer is no. There is no gain. There is no purchase. It's like trying to, trying to climb a brick wall. There's, there's not quite anything to grab onto to scale the wall. We saw in chapter 1, he says that everything is vapor and that, this, that uh, 
the, the, the generations come and the generations go, and time ebbs and flows, and there is nothing we can do about it. There is no security against change or decay or the movement of the seasons. Life goes and goes without our permission. Look at verse 10. The preacher says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also, put, uh, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He says that through all of these times and seasons, listen, God is up to something. Something we can't find out, something we cannot perceive. In fact, he says that God takes all of these things, all of these things that have been listed here, and make them beautiful in their time. And when we read that and we think, we, we read words about like weeping and, and mourning and, and war and, and all of these very negative things that he lists, we, we read that God makes those things beautiful in their time. I think there's intended to be a kind of shock to this, that God makes these things beautiful. And I think what the preacher has in mind is sort of the, the same kind of thing when Joseph told his brothers something similar in Genesis chapter 50, that what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28, he says something very similar when he says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The preacher is looking at the whole of life from birth to death, the good, the bad, the tragedy and triumph, and he says God is eternal. He's above and beyond the sun. He's not hemmed in under the sun like you and I are. Instead, he's weaving a narrative towards an unimaginably happy ending to something beautiful. He's using all of these changing times and seasons to do something beautiful, to do something good. There in verse 11, he says, that God has put eternity into man's heart. That's a, it's an interesting phrase. Like, what, 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 is, what is the author, what, what does the preacher mean by that? I think he's saying that we, we have been created for this kind of longing for something deep and substantial, something that isn't hevel. And our experience of hevel, our experience of the vaporousness of things, can be really challenging and really disheartening. But there's hope knowing that God isn't hevel, that God is above the hevel, and that God is in charge of the changing seasons and the changing times, and there's nothing that evades God's reach. Not even the bad things that happen to us, not even wickedness is beyond God's power and control. And we're called to rest in that, even when we don't understand it. Leads the preacher to perceive two things here in verse 12. First, I perceive that there is nothing better for them, uh, which is man. I perceive that there is nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Last week we, we, we referred to this as setting a table in the mist. Setting a table in the vapor. Receiving the good gifts that God gives us. It's like life is vaporous and life is short and we don't understand everything that takes place, but God has given us good things and calls us to enjoy those good things as a, as a sample and taste of his own goodness. God's ways are not our ways. He is forever. His ways are beyond ours and there's a kind of courageous comfort and, and trusting the, ruling, the, the, the ownership of the universe to God and just enjoying the simple pleasures that he gives us. Verse 14 is the second thing he perceives. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God is forever. 
He is beyond us. He is beyond the hevel. And he says, his ways, though we experience them and, and struggle against them, cannot be tweaked in any way. There's nothing to be added to it or taken from it. God has done it. God's ways are good. Uh, there's a hymn that I, I learned. Uh, Sandra McCracken has this album called uh, just Psalms, I think is the album. Anyway, one of the songs, the opening line is from an old hymn. It says, whate'er my God ordains is right. Have you ever heard that hymn before? Whate'er my God ordains is right. That's a statement of faith and a statement of hope. That whatever God ordains happens in my life. It's good and it's from his hand and he is going to make it beautiful. And I can't perceive it or wrap my mind around it or understand what he intends to do with this. But that's okay, because God is not hemmed in and trapped by the hevel in the way that I am. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And I love this little detail in verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. A couple of weeks ago, we we were talking about how our our pursuit after gain and uh, profit in life is like shepherding after wind. And the author uses that brilliant word picture to kind of point at the futility of a lot of our efforts that we, we spend ourselves on in life shepherding after the wind. It's like an impossible task. You can't chase down the wind and like hog tie it and put it in your pocket, right? But in verse 15, he says, God seeks what has been driven away. Now, I wonder if what he's saying there is that we can't shepherd the wind, but God does. God shepherds the wind. The things which elude our grasp and our understanding, they don't elude God's grasp and God's understanding. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Sometimes by our standards, things are out of place, and there is no good explanation for it. There is injustice and wrongdoing. Have you ever felt that kind of dissonance? There is just ugliness that happens in the world. It's like, I know God is sovereign over all things, and he has a good plan, but also I watch the news, and it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if there's anyone who is shepherding this whole ordeal. I know things that have happened to people that I love, and these things are evil and grievous. And this dissonance leads the preacher to two bits of self-talk back at that dissonance. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. In other words, God is going to bring all things, good and bad, to judgment. And there's comfort in knowing that God will right all wrongs, that he is in control of everything, that his ways and his work are good, and there is no evil or wrongdoing that the Lord will not address. And also what I think he's saying here is it's, when I see injustice and wrongdoing, it's like the only thing that I can do is trust that the Lord is going to address that because those things are beyond my scope and beyond my control. I've got to entrust that to God that he is going to sort that out. Will not the judge of the earth do rightly? He says in verse 18, he says to himself, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. One of the important bits of scripture that Reagan and Hannah even highlighted a moment ago was the fact that we're created in God's image, that we're we're not like beasts, we're not like the animals in some very important aspects and respects. But in some other ways, we are like beasts. Verse 19. Not, not the, this doesn't have anything to do with the gym or weightlifting, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. He says, just like dogs and cats and lions and tigers and bears and cockroaches, we will die. We are, we are different than the beasts in that very important aspect. All is vanity. 
Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. We're carbon-based creatures, and we're going to return back to that carbony, dusty substance again. Verse 21, that's very technical scientific language. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth. He's not there in verse 21, not questioning the existence of the afterlife. He's just saying, there's, just, there's, there's no certainty. There's no way I can know for sure, for sure, for sure, there's for sure, for sure, that there's a place for me to go after I die. And he, he recognizes the, the difficulty and even the burden of faith here in this moment. So what he's saying is that there is no escaping the limits of our mortality. And he's saying that God makes us mortal and calls us to dependence on him through an awareness of our mortality and our limits. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. And the reason, the reason that God does this is to test us, to demonstrate to us that we are very, uh, very small in comparison with who he is. We, we are absolutely, completely subject to God. There's no escaping our limits in mortality. So in verse 22, he says, I saw that there is nothing better that a man should do than rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So once again, he says, like the conclusion in the last chapter, we're to set a table in the mist and receive the good gifts that the Lord has for us as we have time to receive them. So I think there's three important takeaways for us from this text. The first is this. Our lives are characterized by changing times and seasons. Maybe that feels really, really obvious. Or maybe it doesn't. But in our lives, there is a season for everything. Even the painful. Even that which we don't understand. Even what feels wrong. Even the stuff that makes us feel like we're going to go crazy. All of this happens to each of us. There's a time in our life for every time and season. The second takeaway for us is this. Every season comes from God's hand. Every season comes from God's hand. The preacher here in this chapter has a gigantic portrait of God's sovereignty and his goodness over the particular, the, the particular seasons and places that we find ourselves within. God stands above and appoints these seasons. We do not understand Yet there's nothing added, nothing taken away. God does it so that we can learn to trust and fear him. I think another thing that's really helpful about this is when we talk about God having different seasons for our life, it's actually really encouraging to know that all of these are just seasons, right? Like one tendency is for us to assume that we're in the thick of something difficult is to take a snapshot of that moment and kind of project that out as if that's the entire picture. That's the entire movie. The snapshot that I'm experiencing right now is the whole picture. And for the Christian, that is very much not the case. Anything we're experiencing, even the ugliest and the darkest, these things are only seasons. The message of the scriptures is that all injustice and evil and sickness and pain, all of it will end one day. That Jesus is the one who makes all things new. And Jesus is going to restore everything and put everything back to rights something that I, I, I love saying and something that I, I say to myself often is that every prayer that we pray for healing and relief is either answered with a yes or a not yet. Every prayer that we pray for healing or relief as God's people is either answered with a yes or not yet. God will right all things that are wrong. 
This season will end. The harsh cold of winter will give way to spring eventually. And we can be confident that God will make even the hard and ugly seasons beautiful. There's a kind of severe mercy to this. It doesn't make anything easy or pleasant. But the scriptures say that God takes all of these things, even the ugly things, and makes them beautiful. But there's a, there's a tendency to sort of rush certain truths of the Bible. And this feels like one of those truths to me. Uh, there's a way to speak truths like what the, what the preacher is saying here in a way that feels trite or unearned or naive. But I think the preacher kind of works his way to this and tells us, he says, look, there, there are times in our life that are characterized by extreme good and beauty and richness and it's just wonderful. But there's also times of life that are marked by tragedy unspeakable and we are totally impotent in the face of all of it. We cannot direct, manage, or control any of it. And, and you really feel the weight of what he's saying. It's unflinching and almost hard. But beyond all of this, listen, there is one whose ways are unsearchable, whose power is unlimited, who makes everything beautiful. If anything, the statement that God makes everything beautiful is, is an invitation for us to exercise faith. Like Job, who is, who's confronted with the bigness of God at the end of the book of Job, to be invited with, like, are, are you, are you going to be confident that the God who's behind Behemoth and Leviathan and Mount Everest, are you confident that he's going to work everything out? That's the invitation at the end of the book of Job. And that's the invitation for us here in this chapter. That though our lives are characterized by changing times and seasons, these seasons come from God's hand. And whatever my God ordains is right. There's another one of my favorite hymns. This is my father's world. It says, this is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Does the wrong feel strong? Does it ever just feel like evil is winning and that wrong is winning and that there is no righteousness and justice in the land? What Ecclesiastes says is, yes, it feels that way, but we trust that God is in control. God makes all things beautiful. His ways are not our ways. There are all sorts of times and seasons under the sun that feel wrong, and the place of righteousness is wickedness. But God is the ruler yet. Our third takeaway is simply this. We must receive each moment and trust of God. Because God is ruler, we can, we should, and we must receive what God has for us in each of these seasons. To be really aware of our present moment and what God is intending to teach us through these seasons and these times. In fact, we might say that the preacher is offering a call for a kind of courageous joy, a courageous and sober joy in the face of what is sometimes incredibly painful. He says, in spite of these things, be joyful, enjoy God's world, and do good. It's like when, when things feel wrong, one of the hardest things in the world to do is go do good. When, when the wrong seems off so strong, we can feel as if the, that our own sort of small efforts of, of holiness and doing what's right and loving our neighbor can feel completely inadequate. But it's like, a, it's, it's a call to trust that the Lord uses even those things. Be joyful, enjoy God's world, set a table in the midst, all in the trust and fear of the God who isn't bound by any of these seasons. But maybe you're hearing this and you're wondering, how can I trust this God? How can I know How can I know that this God is good and that he is strong and that he will make even what feels wrong beautiful? I think for Christians, we have a vantage point the preacher didn't have. We have scriptures like Galatians 4, which say this. 
But when the fullness of time had come, when it was the right season, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The question is, how can we not trust the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? The God who sends his son to us to bear our sin, to open up his very sonship and his Holy Spirit to us. This is the message of the gospel that Christ came to us in our experience of heaven, in our darkness, when the moment was precisely right. God sent his son to die for us so that we could have his spirit and have access to him as father. And so that we can trust from that point forward, we can trust that whatever he does, whatever he chooses, whatever season he puts me in, I can be confident that his ways are good, his ways are beautiful, and his ways are right. And he knows exactly what I need, exactly when I need it. Surely we can trust the God who sent his son, Jesus. Now tonight we're going to uh, celebrate our redemption in Christ through the taking of the Lord's Supper. We like to do this on our fifth Sunday uh, family worships so that our kids can see us taking the elements, taking communion. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a supper given by the Lord Jesus where he gives bread and he gives juice to symbolize his broken body and his shed blood for us. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded viscerally like what Christ has done for us in being broken for his people. And we're reminded as we enjoy the goodness of the bread and the sweetness of the juice, we're reminded of the goodness and sweetness of Jesus. We're setting a table in the midst by taking the Lord's Supper. In a couple of moments, uh, the band is going to come up and, and play a bit of music. After you take some time to reflect, uh, we're going to invite you to come and receive the elements. Uh, take the elements. You'll take uh, the bread and the juice and take it back to your seat. And then I'll come back up onto the stage and I will lead us in taking the elements together as we remember our common bond and the body and blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you praying that we would have the, the faith of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3 who looks at even the, even the wickedness and the wrongdoing and he says, God will make that beautiful. We thank you for uh, this stirring reminder as to the limits of life under the sun but the hope that we have because of who you are, Heavenly Father, as the one who sent his son to bear our sin, to die for us, to redeem us. We pray that you would give us confidence in your purposes for us, even those things that are dark and difficult. I pray for my friends who are here tonight who uh, bring in heavy burdens, and I pray that as they take the supper that their hearts would be nourished that their faith would be strengthened and that their love for you, Lord Jesus, would be deepened. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray for these kids. We pray your spirit would work in their hearts as they see us taking the elements and that it would provide us opportunities to discuss the gospel and, and, and what you mean to us, Jesus. And I pray that you would sow seeds through these, these family worship times and these little kids' hearts and that they would believe. 
We love you and we pray all of this in Christ's name.